You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 59. Today, we're continuing to ask the question, what's the full story about Safety 1 and Safety 2, part 3? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. This week we're continuing our discussion from the last two episodes about the book Safety One and Safety Two by Eric Holnagel. If you haven't listened to episodes 57 and 58, we suggest you go back and listen to them first and we'll wait. Okay, Drew. Let's dive into chapter six and onwards through to the end of the book. Where do you want to start? Let's start with a quick recap from the past couple of episodes. So the book is called Safety One and Safety Two. And the first half of the book is essentially criticizing Safety One. So we've talked a bit about that, about how it criticizes the way we measure safety and points out some of the challenges with safety measurement when we're measuring number of adverse events and the number of adverse events is decreasing. And it talks about some of the management problems we run into when we try to constrain human variability, assuming that accidents happen because of unsafe behaviours. But a continuing theme throughout those chapters has been, we've been waiting to hear what Holnagel has to say about the alternative. And so hopefully the next few chapters we get a glimpse as to what he envisages instead. Um, First, though, we have chapter six, which is called The Need to Change. So this chapter is kind of interesting in that if you doubted before that Holnagel was talking about safety engineering and thought he was just talking about operational work, this chapter is very much an attack on current safety engineering practices. So he points to a number of things that have changed that have made safety engineering increasingly hard. So he talks about the rate at which new things are being invented. He talks about Moore's law and the way computer power is constantly increasing. He talks about a cycle where we're creating systems that are so complex that they need automation to control them, which then starts to make things harder for humans and we need more automation. And he talks about a problem that other people have called this the system of systems problem. Holnagel doesn't call it that, but it's the fact that every system doesn't exist in isolation. The environment of that system is made up of other systems that have been designed at different times and by different people. And so we can't really think of the safety of a system just in isolation at the time we design it. David, so I think the overall sort of claim here is that systems are no longer tractable, that they're just too complex for us to do analysis in order to work out what safe and unsafe means. And I think this discussion about complexity is not really new or different like it's a real world observation and we can read a lot about complexity science in books without sort of going to a safety one and safety two book to understand that but i think this argument for our existing safety methods of imposing constraints is is no longer effective and i think that's what eric's trying to say here is because the world's getting so complex by us just doing these point in time interventions when we see something in our business that we don't like is never going to be enough to solve you know the safety challenge in our organizations and for us to try to increasingly be effective in these complex complex systems, complex business models, complex organizations, complex technologies, we need to have a different view. So he's still kind of continuing through this chapter uh, a case or a case for the need for for change. And he does say at the end of this chapter that the assumptions that 
under pin safety one are no longer valid in this complex world. So we can't decompose work and, and look at the individual steps in a task. We can't make things go right just by stopping them go wrong and so on. So I think, Drew, I think I think Eric's saying that safety one is merely insufficient, but he does seem to make some stronger claims in this chapter that safety one might almost be entirely obsolete. So he does actually directly state safety one is obsolete. So I don't think there's anything hidden there. And I personally, I get very uncomfortable with this appeal to complexity as an argument to justify anything. The first thing that makes me suspicious is that everyone proposing a new approach does it, regardless of what the new approach is. They say, you know, the older techniques used to work, but the world's becoming more complex, so we need something else. And of course, the something else is always what they're offering. But I, I think it's a self-defeating argument, because if it's genuinely true that the world is so complex that we can't understand it, then firstly, any solution would face that problem. Any solution would have the problem that the world is too complex to understand. And as we're going to see, Holmagel's whole proposal is that we should spend more time trying to understand what's going on, which wouldn't work if things were really so complex. Um, and the second one is that if it were true, it wouldn't apply just to safety. It would be true of anything. And you know, the fact is we're designing modern systems. We've got 787s and they fly. The internet works. Claiming that you know safety is this special thing that can't cope with complexity ignores the fact that that's something that humans are actually very good at doing, is our modern organisations are complex and they are coping with that complexity. And you can always talk to deficiencies, but you could talk about bad things that were happening in organisations at you know, turn of the century, turn of the previous century. You know, bad things happen, but claiming that it's because of complexity or that somehow we've sort of crossed this magic threshold, I think is a very poor argument. And I don't want to sort of spoil too much, but Holnagel is just about to back down from this claim that safety one is obsolete. So I don't want to sort of spend too much time criticising the claim when he himself is not going to continue making it. Yeah, Drew, I agree with what you're saying there about complexity and, and being an excuse. And I think, you know, we don't live in a perfect world. And I think sometimes looking through the lens of all of these theories in safety, but but other other theories and ideas more broadly, if you can find an individual situation or a set of situations where something doesn't quite stand up or isn't quite effective, then, you know, sometimes it can be used as an excuse just to throw it all away. I think Holnagel's done that with some of the safety one ideas about, about saying, you know, in this chapter at least, but you're right, not for the whole book, in, in saying, well, it doesn't work in this complex situation or this complex situation, so we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't think like that at all. And I think what we what we know now is, yes, the world's complex, and yes, there's not really a silver bullet or a perfect solution to something, but if we can solve some things with one idea and solve some other things with another idea, then we just need to have enough ideas to be able to solve all the problems. There's a much more traditional argument for resilience engineering, um, and Holnagel doesn't make it in this book, but I think I'm just going to make it now because I think it provides a much better version than what Holnagel is offering here. And that is that safety one relies on us being able to anticipate how things are going to go wrong. And that's always going to be limited. There are always going to be gaps in our understanding. There are always just going to be imperfections in our methods for anticipating what might go wrong. There are always going to be failures in foresight. And that doesn't make safety one obsolete. It just means that we shouldn't trust that it's going to work 100% effectively. It would be really nice if we had something that complemented it that was not reliant on that perfect decomposability, that perfect understanding of how the future accident was going to happen. And so then the role of resilience is to have that adaptive capacity to to manage the the unforeseen situations, the you know unknown unknowns, um, and fail safely. 
and extend and gracefully extend if people think about episode 24 with David David Wood about graceful extensibility about being able to extend your your capabilities to respond to those changing situations yeah so so you think of safety one just as it protects against lots of specific things but it doesn't protect against generic things that we haven't specifically protected against so Drew, we're now going to go into chapter seven and, and so this is where we started for the first six chapters have been about creating the need or the case for something for a new idea chapter seven is where the new idea gets gets laid out by promise in which eric sort of promises to do the flip side of chapter five so in chapter five he decomposed safety one to explain all of the problems and now in chapter seven he's deciding to clearly build up and describe what safety two is drew so how how does he do this construction of of safety two i think this will be clearer if we leave aside holnagel's language about ontology and aetiology and phenomenology and just sort of focus on the central ideas. The the central idea he offers is that work performance is always variable. Um, And he says the variability is not just inevitable, it's necessary. So we need work to vary. We need humans to adjust, to adapt, to keep things safe. Um, And he also says that that's never going to be perfect. So if it was possible to say like, here is the perfect way we should adapt in this circumstance, People will always fall somewhat short of that. So anytime you look in hindsight, there's always going to be this gap between how we would have liked things to happen and how they actually happen. But that's constant. You take a snapshot of work at any time and you'll see work that is variable and work that is falling a little bit short. And so it's fairly meaningless to say at this particular time things were functioning incorrectly because that's just the normal state of things. I mean, Drew, I, I agree with this. I think work is always variable dynamic for people who know some of the writing that we've done, Drew. We've referenced some, some ideas earlier than, you know, Jens Rasmussen even around, um, you know, Daniel Katz, who, who sort of said that in the 60s, that work is so dynamic and so unpredictable that you need to have some basis for how people will perform their role, but you also need to encourage initiative and spontaneity and, and adaptation to the all of the situations that people may face that you can't um, predict or prescribe. But at some point, I think where where I don't quite know how to interpret what Eric saying here because and and this has probably been one of my big challenges around safety safety two at a theoretical level has been that if we say that safe things going well is not just the opposite of them going wrong and if we're saying we want things to function correctly or or incorrectly Eric's kind of saying he's saying that we need things to go right and we don't really define what's right but then he's also saying that we can't characterize things as correct or incorrect but at some point in time practically in organizations we actually need to form conclusions we need to decide if ways of work are okay or not okay, if they're safe or not safe, if they're good, if they're bad, if they're okay to continue or if they're not okay to continue. And of course, this should be a sense-making and a consensus-building process. But at some point, the outcome needs to be in an organization an agreement on either continuing or discontinuing a work practice, which does involve some kind of categorization or judgment about whether something is, is good or bad. Um, So I'm not sure, Drew, how you land on some of the different labels that get used where we say, should we or shouldn't we categorize things as as one way or another? This is where I think the writing style is, again, doing a disservice to the fundamental ideas. So Holnagel says really literally that it's not possible or meaningful to characterize components as functioning correctly or incorrectly. So he says that flat out, but he does not mean that. He gives lots of examples later on that where he clearly does think it's possible to characterize. Um, and if you go look at his own definitions, he thinks that, there, that you know, what unsafe means is that there is an unacceptable rate or risk or frequency of things going badly. So he clearly thinks it's possible to be in a bad state. 
um, which means he thinks that it, you know, a bad state by definition exists somewhere. So he uses this sort of like really strong language, but what he actually just means is that he thinks don't focus too much on the classification. That, you know, that's not what we should be spending time and attention on. And I think you can agree with that without agreeing with his literal statements sometimes. No, I absolutely agree with that. I think the time is spent on understanding the work and what it might mean as opposed to necessarily um, labelling things. But that's um, that's helpful, Drew. I hope that's a helpful interpretation for me. So, so the next bit, I'm going to have a trouble, David, and I'm going to ask you for your help with this bit. Because Holnagel uses a lot of these engineering metaphors. And in this next bit of the chapter... He starts treating them very literally, and he starts talking as if he's actually using engineering terms and using them in a precise way. And to me, it just sounds like gobbledygook, you know, that, that he is talking pseudoscientific nonsense if you try to interpret what he's saying literally. You know, he's talking about nonlinear systems and resonant frequencies as if they're like engineering terms when previously they sort of worked, sort of worked as a metaphor. And here they absolutely don't. Yeah, I think, Drew, if I, if I recall the part of the book that you're talking about, you know, trying to talk about this idea that the direct causes of accidents in complex systems are unknowable. So you have an accident and to think that you can reconstruct exactly what happened is 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 not possible in a complex system. And I mean, I'm not an engineer, Drew, so I'm not sure I can help you with any of the engineering terms. But, um, but I think that that's not always the case. I mean, the fact is we, you know, we can make some fairly strong we can make some fairly reliable and valid conclusions about what happened leading up to something going wrong. Yes, yeah, so, so he makes this claim that the outcomes of accident are visible and leave a trace on the world, but that the causes are transient and non-direct and the outcomes just emergent from the causes. And that's nonsense when it talks about a technical system. You, we don't need to have physical traces of the Mars Polar Lander to reconstruct exactly what happened. It happened on... You know, it was an interplanetary voyage. We have none of the evidence in front of us. And we know precisely what went wrong. <laughs> Our ability to diagnose technical causes seems almost independent of the complexity of the system. This only makes sense if you're talking about things like organisational causes. And there the problem is not complexity. The problem is social construction. Yeah, Holnagel is really wary about using postmodern terms like socially constructed causes. Um, but I'm pretty sure that's what he sort of means Whereas he's very liberal with using these engineering terms that really um, don't make sense. So there's a really valid point that the cause of accidents when it comes to the organisation or when it comes to the human behaviour aren't found in the physical remains of the system. That's a very valid point. But yeah, should we move on from that to the good stuff? Yeah, keep going, Drew. Um, we're deep inside Chapter 7 now and we're um, we're starting to build up what Safety 2 is. Okay, so so here Holnagel does actually give us a definition um, it's a terrible definition, so we're going to move on fairly quickly from it. He says, the actual definition of safety two is a condition where as much as possible goes right. Um, so safety one is preventing you know, as little as possible going wrong. Safety two is as much as possible going right. And in terms of a definition at literal face value, that's the same damn definition. Um, it's rhetorically neat, but it says nothing. And, and then... To explain further, he says, oh, if you want to know what I really mean by this, then look earlier in the book where he was just criticising safety one, so he still wasn't giving us a definition. So I think in order to get stuff out of this, we have to read a lot of interpretation rather than the direct words. 
And there is eventually, so I'm giving the sort of gist of the chapter rather than anything I can directly quote. This is not about definitions of safety. Safety 2 defines safety in exactly the same way that safety 1 does. So it's not about ontology, it's not about etiology, it's not about phenomenology, it's not about epistemology. It's simply about what is your approach to try to achieve safety. And whereas safety 1 is about trying to prevent failure, so focusing on identifying what failure looks like and then stopping that from happening, safety 2 is about looking at what creates success and trying to promote that. And in practice, the big difference is that promoting success often means permitting and supporting lots of variability, whereas preventing failure often requires inhibiting variability, constraining the system to prevent failure. And I think, Drew, what you've just described there really succinctly and really plainly and, and really well is the core idea here that, you know, if we're looking for the exact definition or, or whatever, it's it's actually a step back from that and and think about that worldview. And this is this is where I think safety too can be very, very distant from safety one practices in our organization where for a lot of time a safety professional or an organization worried about safety won't spend any time looking at normal day-to-day work or any time looking at things where there's no problem that's being raised or reported or identified. And I think what Eric's encouraging us to do in the way that you've just described it there quite simply in this entire book is spend most of your time looking at all of those things, which are just a non-event when it comes to safety. Um, so David, I tried to throw in an example here. And even in your notes on my notes, it's clear that there's no clear, distinct world of safety one and safety two. It's more about focus. Um, but the example I gave was about safety systems on a car. So lots of things that make a car safe aren't about preventing accidents. They're about helping you drive well. So we give you good controls, we give you a responsive engine, we give you good visibility. All of those things help you be a good driver. So that's sort of supporting normal work, supporting the normal work of driving. And then we add in safety systems to a car which are much more about either preventing an accident or mitigating the effects of an accident. Uh, so like a lane departure warning tells you when you're drifting out of a lane, collision alarm or new, the new systems that apply the brakes when you're about to have a collision. They're about seeing an accident, stopping the accident happening. And then your seatbelts, airbags, crumpled zones, all about protecting in the event of an accident. Andrew, yeah, I mean, when I when I read your example there, uh, um, I just straight away thought, oh, Drew's talking left-hand side, right-hand side of the bow tie, depending on the top event, um, because, you know, you've got these detective and mitigating controls, and you've also got these sort of preventative controls sort of on the left-hand side. And I'm going, no, but that's not accurate in the sense of a top event. So I had myself in this little thinking loop. And then I was even going back to all those things that you mentioned about good visibility, easy to reach controls, responsive engine. They're also about trying to minimize threats and stop things from going wrong that are caused by a lack of visibility or an inappropriate operator response. So I ended up in this kind of infinite thought loop of just saying, well, everything's in some way preventative. Um, even if you're trying to make things go well, you're sort of at the same time trying to make them not go wrong. And this is where I ended up in this sort of infinite thought loop. So, so I think that is actually the point here, is that we're using the same definition. Safety 2, just like Safety 1, is about preventing accidents. It's purely about what do we focus on to try to prevent the accident? Do we focus on what is the accident and how do we stop us reaching it? Or do we focus on what is successful normal work and focus on making that go well? Both, we ultimately, the point is, don't get in an accident. It's just you, which do you focus on? Do you focus on the normal worker driving or do you focus on the preventing the accident? 
So I, I like I like where we've just ended up there. And I don't want to oversimplify some of these ideas because of the way that you described the worldview before. It is a different worldview when we're coming at understanding the way work happens and how to make it successful more of the time, as opposed to trying to map out as many ways that we think it can go wrong and trying to stop those things. Like they are different, different ways, different views as if as Eric you know, has said to me before, we're still looking at the same work. We're still looking at the same organization. We're just looking at the that, at what we're trying to achieve with a different set of glasses. So we are still looking at the same thing, just in a different way. So what is the re- what what's sort of said in the rest of the chapter? And then where does the book go from there? So the rest of the chapter is more about like practically what do you do in order to do safety too. Um, and Holnagel gives three sort of things that we do. One of them is recognizing performance variability. Second one is monitoring performance variability. And the third one is controlling performance variability. But he's clear that controlling doesn't mean, you know, think of unacceptable and acceptable. It means more about sort of trying to steer the performance variability into positive directions. So the sort of key underlying message is focusing on understanding how work happens successfully most of the time, instead of thinking about how it might go wrong and preventing that. Um, both with the aim that if you do either one of those, that should increase the number of times you do well, decrease the number of times you do badly. So I think, Drew, like I said, we've got a definition now of safety too. It's sort of, as much as it's not about, it's sort of, we said it's the same definition. We we want work to go well, we and therefore we want it to, to not result in an accident. We've created a different, or Eric's created, if you like, a, a different way of thinking to enable us to get at that outcome in a different way, which which we've now sort of clarified a bit of safety too. And he asked two questions at the end of this chapter that I found really useful if we wanted to start working at a practitioner level, start working with these ideas. And the two questions he simply asked are, are is, you know, do we know in our organization how or why things go right? And how can we see what goes right? So if it's not an incident reported, how can we see that? So he's actually starting to ask, you know, two pretty important questions. You know, what processes do you have in your organization to know what happens when nothing happens? Um, so the car white kind of dynamic non-event of safety. And how or why things go right. So when you can see these things going well, how can you understand how they're going well, if you like? And I think they're important questions and they're good practitioner-focused questions to go, well, how much of my safety management effort do I currently spend on those two questions? So so let's move on to Chapter 8, which is where we find out what Holnagel is actually proposing based on this theory that he's presented. And I don't know about you, David, while I prefer the second half of the book to the first half... It really annoys me how much of a journey we've had to get to get here. Because after everything that he's done to criticize Safety One, he starts chapter eight by saying straight out that Safety One and Safety Two are complementary. <laughs> you Safety One is Safety One's not obsolete. We should be doing them both. And he uh, he does he does go further to say that please don't stop doing all those things you're doing, like trying to understand how things go wrong, doing your risk management and doing a lot of these practices, but complement that with with this with this new view. So I think um, it, it was one of those books on the way through that you kind of had to step back and, like you said a few times, like you've sort of paraphrased a few times and, and think about what is what is Eric trying to say? Um, what's the message underneath the words um, here? Because if you read it literally, when I was rereading this at a, at a kind of a literal, well, you know, face value, what's on the page type of thing, it, there is, yeah, it, it at times does confuse and contradict itself if, you, if you're just reading the words on the page. So, David, are you saying that we should take Holnagel seriously but not literally? I think all theorists we should take seriously and not literally without without knowing how many people in the world I just offended with that statement. <laughs> okay, fair, fair enough. Yeah, so, so what we have here is we have 
a position which is much more uh, appeasing, much more leaving room for safety one. Keep doing what you're doing. And that includes investigating accidents. Maybe put a different emphasis on some of those activities to allow for the more complex world that Holnagel says that we're in. Add in a few new safety two practices. And interestingly, given how critical he's been of the past, keep in mind that frontline work is already a practical mix of safety one and safety two. In fact, Holnagel's got this example at one point he goes through just at the end of the previous chapter, where he says that the job of safety managers should be supporting workers to detect and move away from impending accidents. So in other words, saying that we can use safety two to support workers to do safety one. Sort of this understanding that the two are always going hand in hand. We're always sometimes focusing on avoiding bad things. We're always sometimes focusing on achieving good things. And it becomes clear that Holnagel's main complaint is really just that safety management in particular is overly focused on safety one at the moment or at the time that he wrote the book. So he's saying that the reason he's criticizing safety one isn't that it's bad, it's that we're so much in a safety one mindset that we're having these pathological disadvantages. And that once we move to a bit more of a hybrid position doing some safety one, some safety two, we get rid of the disadvantages of safety one and we embrace the advantages of safety two without ever giving up the safety one activities. Yeah, and I think that's um, that's a reasonable statement to make, and I think that's a very balanced view. And I, I, I think I say sometimes, well, I do say sometimes about the pendulum. You know, if you if you're at either extreme, you're probably not maximising the utility of what you're doing. So I think that's what he's trying to do by by just having the pendulum sit more neatly in the middle for a lot of organisations, or or even closer to safety to the safety two end. But so Drew, I think if we so. We've we've sort of had at chapter eight or something, almost up to chapter eight, I think, um, or or halfway through chapter eight, we've had this big breakdown of safety one. We've built up a definition about safety two, and then he starts talking about um, methods and techniques um, in relation to safety two. And I was speaking to Eric earlier this year, and he's surprised at how I suppose he is somewhat surprised now in 2020 about how few techniques we've got to do some of these safety two ideas. Um, I think we saw a, we saw in 2013, 14, around the time just after this book, we have we have we had Fram, we had Rag from Eric, we've had Stamp from Nancy Leverson. We've had we had these things come out, but then in the last five years, we've almost we almost haven't had any new techniques and methods, sort of um, as far as I as far as I'm aware, shape up other than the ever popular learning teams, which we spoke about in an earlier episode on fads and fashions for safety. So, so I think there's a couple of things going on there. The first one is that. Safety 2, as a theory, doesn't actually offer all that many suggestions. Look ahead to next week, we're going to talk about a paper that you wrote, David, where I think you actually lay out a broader scope for Safety 2 methods. But Holnagel's really only got two things to offer in this book. The first one is looking for what goes right. And by that, he's, he's not talking about sort of studying extreme success. That's a common misunderstanding. He Because remember, Going right is what happens most of the time. So Holnagel says we should put lots of effort into studying normal and everyday work. And he repeats that a few times in a few different ways. He touches on a few examples like appreciative inquiry, cooperative inquiry. He doesn't use the word learning teams, but he clearly hints towards learning team style approaches. And the second category that he talks about is maintaining good working conditions. And he doesn't say exactly what the role of safety people is in that. But he does talk about the way that just bad working conditions compromise all of those things that Safety 2 says are important. 
So he talks particularly about things like the amount of discretionary time we have at work and how if you're in a job that's taken up with email and paperwork demands, that's going to take away your capacity to vary and adjust and improve your work. Um, so he's clearly saying, you know, safety people should have some role in that, but he hasn't spelled out how safety people should get involved in working conditions, just that ideally they should. So Drew, the key assumption um, I, I really liked in, in this chapter, one of the, one of the, one of the pieces that I really liked is the key assumptions. And, and he, he says at one point, safety one assumes that things go right because people work as imagined, if you like. Things go right because people follow the procedures. And then safety two assumes that things go right, not because people follow the procedures, but that things go right because people always make what they think are sensible adjustments to current and future situations. And this is the thing that's always, I suppose, even before I knew there was such a thing as safety two really early in my career, you know, 20 years ago, where it just didn't make sense to me for us to think that an experienced worker was going to pull out a procedure to read how to do their job. So, and that they were going to actually just be able to do something in exactly the same way every single day. So I think, I think that's a really important assumption for our, you know, before we do practical takeaways for our listeners to take away is that, you know, what is it that your organization believes about work goes well? And, and that's a good question you can ask if you want to do some ethnographic interviewing, ask people just ask people that question, you know, why does work go well? Or why do people or why does it why does a manager or a safety manager, you know, what do they believe about what creates work going well? Um, and, and you'll understand, you'll you start to learn about what your organization thinks and believes. So, so let's move on to the final chapter, chapter nine. Uh, there's not a lot new in this chapter, but I'm glad it's there because the chapter provides one of the best litmus tests as to whether anyone who's complaining about safety too has actually read the book or not. And so the one sort of interesting thing here is that Holnagel specifically predicts that other people are going to try to create safety three. I mean, he says they'll do this in two ways. One of them is by merging safety one and safety two, and the other is by moving beyond the ideas of safety one and safety two. And he says specifically, it doesn't make sense if you do that to call it safety three. If, you, if your big idea is combining safety one and safety two, well, tough, because that's what Holnagel is already proposing in his book. That's him saying tough, not me. That's He basically calls out in advance anyone who says, hey, we should need to compromise between safety one and safety two. Holnagel has, that, that's Holnagel's whole proposal, according to chapter nine of the book, is we want to compromise and merge safety one and safety two. Andrew, we know that there's been a paper published this year by, by Nancy Levison titled Safety Three, which we haven't spoken about on the podcast. So um, clearly there's no love lost between Eric and Nancy over these issues. Yeah, if you read Safety Three by Nancy Levison as her attack on Holnagel, um, Chapter Nine is Holnagel preemptively attacking Levison for her attack on him. It's, um, but yeah, his point about things like that is he says, sure, people are going to come along and want to replace my whole theory. But in that case, don't call it safety three, because I've just divided the world into safety one and safety two. If you call it safety three, you're agreeing with how I've divided the world. And I didn't leave any space for a safety three. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, l l like, it, like it or not, calling things safety three is kind of agreeing with Holnagel presenting safety one and safety two and then disagreeing when he says you can't have safety three. So it's a very inconsistent position to take. So, Drew, do you want to talk about some practical takeaways and then we'll... Um... We'll um, answer the question from the last three episodes. Okay, so, so this is a tricky one to do takeaways because the whole point of us doing this is we don't like dumbing down a book-lint thing into simple points. And so we really do hope that if you're listening to this, that you do at least skim through the book yourself, preferably do give it a read. I think it's important for a modern safety practitioner to have read 
safety one and safety two. Um, but things to take away. First one is that most of the criticisms of safety two are misunderstandings. So almost everything that I've read that someone has said to criticize safety two, Holnagel has already said that exact thing somewhere in the book. However, I think it's very forgivable for people who've read the book to misunderstand it because Holnagel himself says lots of things literally that he later retracts. But I do think it's a very poor mistake and not forgivable to misunderstand Safety 2 when you haven't at least read the book and given it a chance. Second thing is that for all of his complaining about Safety 1 and all his talk about inconsistent definitions and ontology and aetiology, the point of Safety 1 and Safety 2 is Safety 1 and Safety 2 not safety one versus safety two. By the end of the book, it's very clear, and I think everything Holnagel has said since doubles down on this, Holnagel's saying safety one and safety two are consistent and complementary. Everyone should be doing both of them. And just to reinforce that point, I think the thing is, um, try to understand what might go wrong and try to take action in your business to prevent something going wrong. And when something does go wrong, try to understand it as broadly as you possibly can. But at the same time as you're doing all of that, which he calls safety one, make sure you're looking at at where things haven't gone wrong, understanding why why they they're going well and not going wrong, and trying to maintain or enhance those conditions in your organisation to create more of that. Because if they're going well, they can't be going wrong at the same time. So it really is a a both um, an and and a both conversation, not an all conversation. And I suppose some of the things that we see sometimes in the popular interpretation, which is, oh, if you're doing safety two, then you know, work as done is always right. Or if you're doing safety too, then you shouldn't write procedures for your business. All, all those things are not what's written in this book. Yeah, exactly. The one area where I think there is an incompatibility between safety one and safety two, and this is much more about emphasis than about activities, is that they do take a different worldview to variability. So safety one looks very suspiciously at variability and says that your variability is something to risk assess. It's something to worry about because if things are variable, it's out of control, it might lead into an unsafe state. Whereas safety too encourages us to be much more supportive and tolerant of variability and not to automatically think that variable means less safe. And I guess that includes when it comes to some of our existing safety practices like risk assessment and accident investigation, that that tolerance to variability means that we shouldn't just assume that because work is varying or that it's different from procedures or there's between a gap between how we imagine and how it's done, that that means we should apply labels like human error and incorrect. So a shift to embrace both safety one and safety two is going to mean a move away from some of the thought processes that were driving the just safety one. And so Drew, any final any final takeaways? So the, the final one is just safety two does say, here are some new practices you should be doing as well. I think lots of people have now sort of, even people who are critical of safety too, have got on board with the fact that there are some practices that involve understanding current work, worker consultation, that maybe some people have always been doing. Maybe we should always, always should have been doing them. But safety too encourages us to think about that as a core part of the safety professional's role, is understanding everyday work better. So David, I'm going to fling this next one to you. We've been trying to answer this one question for three weeks. What's the full story behind safety one and safety two? What's the answer? So Drew, I've got um, table 8.1 on page 147 of the book, the Safety 1 and Safety 2 book where Eric Holnagel that we've been reviewing in front of me. And I think I'll just take a minute because I think that's um, that's explaining the full story. So the definition of safety. In Safety 1, as few things as possible go wrong. In Safety 2, as many things as possible go right. The safety management principle in Safety 1, 
It's about being reactive, responding when something happens and categorizing unacceptable risk. In safety two, it's proactive. It's continually trying to anticipate developments and events based on normal work. The explanation of accidents. In safety one, accidents are caused by failures and malfunctions and the purpose of an investigation is to find these causes. In safety two, is that work basically happens in the same way, regardless of the outcome. So the purpose of an investigation is to understand how things usually go right as a basis for explaining how they might sometimes go wrong. The attitude to people. In safety one, people are predominantly seen as a liability, a hazard or something that needs to be, or, or an element of the system that needs to be controlled. In safety two, because of this performance variability of work being normal, humans are seen as a resource necessary for system flexibility and resilience. And finally, the role of this performance variability. In safety one, it's that if work varies, it's harmful and it should be prevented as far as possible. In safety two, is that this performance variability is inevitable and it's also useful. And so it only needs to be monitored and be managed. So Drew, that's a very long answer to a question, but we have spent three weeks reviewing this book. Um, and we probably want to know from our listeners if they tuned out for three weeks or if they thought something different was um, was 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 interesting and and would like us to do more of it. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd certainly be interested both in our listeners' opinions of Safety One and Safety Two, and on this way that we've spent a couple of weeks looking at a book and whether they would like us to do that again. I probably won't do it in the next couple of episodes, but certainly be very happy to pick up another book and give it a similar treatment if that's what people would like. Andrew, you did give a little teaser there for, for next week. Next week's episode 60, and our listeners would know that every 10 episodes we talk about our own research. So we'll talk about um, a paper that we wrote, um, the final paper of my PhD research titled Safety to Professionals, uh, How Resilience Engineering Can Transform Safety Practice. And that's hopefully going to take some of these ideas from the last three weeks and talk about the role of safety professionals and, and practical application within organisations. So, you know, if you have liked this train of thought for three weeks, then it'll continue and deepen a little bit next week. So that's it for this week. Uh, send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 